Welcome to the Semper Reformato podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. Acts chapter 22 and verse 1. Men, brethren, and fathers, hear ye my defence which I make now unto you. And when they heard that he spake in the Hebrew tongue to them, they kept the more silence. And he saith, I verily, I am verily a man which am a Jew, born in Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, yet brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, and taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers and was zealous toward God, as ye all are this day. And I persecuted this way unto the death, binding and delivering unto prisons both men and women. And also the high priest doth bear me witness, and all the estate of the elders, from whom I received letters unto the brethren, and went to Damascus to bring them which were there bound unto Jerusalem for to be punished. And it came to pass that as I made my journey and was come nigh unto Damascus about noon, suddenly there shone from heaven a great light round about me. And I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying unto me, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And I answered, Who art thy Lord? And he said unto me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom thou persecutest. And they that were with me saw indeed the light and were afraid, but they heard not the voice of him that spake to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said unto me, Arise and go to Damascus. And there it shall be told thee of all things which are appointed for thee to do. And when I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of them that were with me, I came to Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good report of all the Jews that dwelt there, came to me and stood and said unto me, Brother Saul, receive thy sight. And the same hour I looked up upon him. Amen. Did you ever hear the expression, it's just the same, only different? Just the same, only different. It's an oxymoron, isn't it? Possibility. How can you be exactly the same and yet totally different all at the same time? And yet that is precisely the position of the Christian in relationship to every other person in this world. So that's what I want to talk to you about this evening. Being the same only being different. In fact, what I want to talk about is your testimony. 
Not so much your testimony left out, but a spoken testimony, an account of what the Lord has done for you. But let's start with a recap. Paul was told not to go to Jerusalem, but as we have seen over the past few weeks, he went to Jerusalem anyway. And it has disastrous consequences. Thankfully for us, if not for Paul, God stepped in and prevented him from destroying his witness rather violently by allowing a lynch mob of Jews to grab him and drag him out of the temple and begin the process of literally beating him to death there and then. But you see, the Romans who are in charge don't like riots. They don't like insurrections. And they suppress them fairly ruthlessly. So they marched into the temple area with an army and they extracted Paul. They handcuffed him, they bound him, they brought him to the steps to the fortress, the Antonio Palace at the side, at the, at the corner of the, of the temple grounds. And when they reached the steps that lead up into this, this palace, this this garrison area, Paul respectfully asked the commander if he could turn and make a defense onto the Jews. That's where we left it last week, do you remember? The Roman commander was surprised because Paul was a well-spoken, well-educated man. He was speaking in Greek, so he gave permission, and there, right there and there on the steps, Paul turns and he raises his hands and he begins to address the mob in their own language. He begins a defense of the faith before the Jews of Jerusalem. And he begins by giving a wee word of testimony. What's the value of that? Verse 22 or chapter 22, verse 1, rather. He says, Men, brethren, and fathers, hear my defense, which I make now unto you. I'm going to defend the faith. So our first consideration is, what is the value of a spoken testimony? I'm sure that you know That your testimony is not the gospel. Don't you know that? The gospel is the preaching of Christ and him crucified for our sins. Testimonies are generally about my personal experience with Christ. My personal experience. And most people who give testimony are, of course, being completely sincere. But you always get the odd one, don't you, who sort of wants to over-egg it a wee bit. You know, the one who enhances his or her testimony for better effect. The one who's been as bad as they could possibly be before the Lord turned them from their wicked paths. And to be fair, here in Northern Ireland, our troubles for a while encouraged that. It wasn't that long ago that you would have found great testimony meetings up and down the country being held in churches and halls and wherever. And 
you would have terrorists who perhaps had committed dreadful crimes, murders even. And they had been converted in prison, which was great. But they were almost being fated as, as heroes. They had diaries full of engagements. They were speaking at evangelistic services up and down the country. Churches and ministers encouraged this. They advertised it. They made them into what we might call gospel celebrities. They used these meetings to draw people into their churches and fill their churches. And sometimes these testimonies would have taken up entire meetings with long-winded accounts of the exploits that they got up to in their unconverted days, with great laughter at their pranks and tears at their evil doings, amazement at their misplaced courage. And this would go on for quite some time before they would get to the point where they would say, I got saved. Praise the Lord. And there was seldom any proper presentation of the gospel message. Now my position is that your testimony is very valuable. Spoken testimony. And I think it's also very important. But I think you have to know when to do it. And what to include. In fact, it's so important that Luke recounts the events of Paul's conversion three times in the book of Acts. So we can't say that Paul's personal testimony is not in any way insignificant or unnecessary. We just need to know what the real value of that experience is, when to use it, and how to use it. So let's try to imagine the scene. There's a riot again. Um, there's a howling, angry mob like you'd see in some of the footage that comes out from the Middle East today. Haven't you seen some of that film strip? Where there's hordes and hordes of people all shouting and, and ranting and shaking their fists in the air. How's Paul ever going to get through to these people? It's a hopeless situation. I would say he's hindered by his own style of delivery. See, Paul's no orator. Remember that the Greeks in Athens accused him of being a babbler. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he describes his speech. He said, I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech. He says, my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of men's wisdom. In 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 10, Paul even admits that his speech is contemptible. He says, for his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Now, Paul's standing here in front of this howling crowd. He's no match for it. He's not Boris Johnson. You know, somebody who can come up with three words and get a crowd behind him. 
get Brexit done. Well, you can consider the efficacy of that for yourself. Save the NHS. There's a good one. What about build back better? Slogans with no meaning whatsoever. Paul doesn't work like that. Paul doesn't work in sound bites, in catchy slogans. In 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 6, he says, Though I be rude in speech, yet not in knowledge. That sums him up. Paul is a teacher. He's a catechist. He's a man who spends hours and hours and days and weeks and even years in systematic teaching from the scriptures. He gathers round him a small group of people and he disciples them as Jesus taught us to do in the Great Commission. That's Paul's method. He's not a man working sound bites. And yet what this crowd wants is a sound bite. What would be the point in trying to reason with these people who are shaking their fists and baying for his blood? What would be the point of standing up in front of these people and trying to teach them systematic theology? To logically and carefully and methodically set forth Christ as the Messiah, the Saviour of the world? Are they even going to stop to listen? Would they just suddenly calm down and become a class of eager theology students? There's not a chance. These people have one thing in mind, and that is to get hold of Paul and to murder him on the spot. And that is where Paul's testimony becomes his chosen method of address. I repeat Your testimony is not the gospel. Your testimony is not a substitute for the gospel. But here's what it is. It can be an effective defense of the gospel in a world that is entirely antagonistic to gospel preaching. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 14 says this. But and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. And be not afraid of their tether terror, neither be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you, listen, a reason of the hope that is in you. That's what your testimony comes in. Here's why I believe what I believe. Having a good conscience, says First Peter, that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. Talk about Jesus. Talk about what he's done in your life. Talk about how he has influenced you. Talk about how he has changed your life and your family and your whole attitude to how you live. Now, how are you going to do that? 
The first thing that Paul says in this wee word of testimony, he says that he's just the same as these Jews. Just exactly the same. He begins his defence with a tone of reconciliation in verse 3 down to verse 6. Look at how he starts in verse 3. He says, I am a Jew. I'm just like you. I am verily a man which am a Jew. He begins by demonstrating that he is exactly the same as the people he's talking to. He demonstrates his Jewishness. He shows them how much he is like them. He parades his Jewish credentials. See how he does it. He talks about his birth and his upbringing. I am verily a man which am a Jew, born in Tarsus a city in Cilicia. So he's establishing here that he's no backwoods man. He's born into an influential city. He's born into a place of commerce where there is a large colony of diaspora Jews. He's born into a wealthy family and he grows up in the city where the very focus of his faith lies in Jerusalem. Wouldn't that be fantastic? You know, that would be like me, or some of us here, growing up in Geneva, wouldn't it? Do you know, whenever we moved to Randallstown, I was an Elam pastor. And I was in charge of the local church to some extent. And we got a house up there, a nice, a nice uh, detached home. Bought it for £65,000. Four bedroom detached house with a carriage. Hard to believe nowadays, isn't it? And I got a nameplate made for our house. Because it's nice when you have a detached house. don't have one now, mind you. It's nice when you have a detached house to have a name rather than just a number. And I called it Geneva Lodge. Just to put my stamp on the front door. I was the leading pastor <laughs> at that time. Aye. Paul's education. He points to his education. At the feet of Gamaliel and taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers. His family were rich enough to be able to afford to send him to university in Jerusalem. It was every clever Jewish boy's dream to be able to excel at studies in the local synagogue, to go to Jerusalem to complete his education. I suppose the modern equivalent would be for a young man who feels led to enter the ministry to be able to complete his studies at one of our local colleges and then be well enough off to spend three or four years in America at Westminster Theological Seminary studying under Michael Horton or one of these great thinkers Gamaliel one of the great famous rabbis of that day known for his moderation known for his great tolerance he appears in Acts chapter 5 and verse 34 when he stood up in the council of Pharisee 
a doctor of the law, and he recommended and commanded to put the apostles forth a little space, says the scriptures, give them a wee bit of space, and said to the Jews, ye men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do as touching these men. He was almost defensive of the early church. And one has to wonder how this supposed moderation didn't seem to filter down to the young Saul. For in his next point, as he stands on that stair, is to point out his zeal for the law. He says, I was zealous toward God. As ye all are this day, and I persecuted this way unto the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. Verse 4. Talks about his zeal for the law. See the progression in Paul's statement of enthusiasm for the Jewish law. He's as zealous as any of the people who are wanting him dead, but he's so opposed to the Christians that he persecuted them. And that persecution went right to murder. And he's so eager to destroy the Christian faith that his affections, his actions affected even the women. He's a murderous, heartless bully. He's using the might and the backing of the Jewish temple police to persecute and destroy the Christian faith, to violently destroy it. And for all of these proofs of Paul's Judaism, he calls witnesses to testify. Look at verse 5. As also the high priest doth bear me witness. And all the estate of the elders from whom I also I received letters unto the brethren and went to Damascus to bring them which were there bound unto Jerusalem for to be punished. Now do you see what Paul's doing here? He's saying to that howling mob of Jews who were in the temple to worship God, who were zealous of the law, who had all the, the, the privileges of Judaism that he had and he's saying to them listen I am one of you I am a Jew I've done all what you're doing I would have been standing there right where you are now a few years ago he's just the same as them only he's completely different look at verse 6 down to verse 12 Paul has said that he is no different from anyone else in that crowd. But now we see he's going to say, I am very different from you. There's an erroneous view of Paul's ministry being touted by people like N.T. Wright. They call it the new perspective on Paul. And it undermines the vital doctrines of election and sovereign grace. We don't need a new perspective in Paul. But when Paul met the Lord Jesus Christ, his perspective was changed. 
The Jews, especially the Pharisees, believed that God's grace and his love and his mercy and his forgiveness was reserved exclusively for them, for the Jews. As a Pharisee, Paul would have believed that too. But something had happened. Something had happened that had changed that. He had met the risen Christ. And I tell you something, when you meet the Lord Jesus, it changes your perspective. It gives you a whole new outlook on life. Look at how he describes how he met the Saviour. He sees the obvious glory of the Lord in verse 6. It came to pass that as I made my journey and was come nigh unto Damascus about noon, suddenly there shone from heaven a great light round about me. He's completely humbled and defeated. Look at verse 7. And I fell to the ground. This is the man who is going out high-handedly for to murder Christians. And he's thrust to the ground. I'm almost tempted to talk there for a minute and stop and talk about some of these Amos walks and things that people go on where they think they go in a wee dander in the woods and they they commune with the Lord. Uh, You never hear them going on a Damascus walk where you get thrown off your horse and landed in the ground and blinded by the glory of God. Look at how he learns about the value of the body of Christ. He heard a voice saying unto me, this is still verse 7, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Paul was persecuting Christians. But in persecuting Christians, he's persecuting Christ. Verse 8, And I answered, Who art thy Lord? And he said unto me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom thou persecutest. You see, when persecution comes against the church, our Saviour, our Lord, takes it personally. Paul calls out witnesses to give testimony to these events. He says, there was people with me. There were fellow travellers on that road, and they that were with me, verse 9, saw indeed the light and were afraid, but they heard not the voice of him that spake to me. And they drew out then the, the testimony, which we'll see next time, the testimony of a well-known and devout Jew in verse 10. He calls out the testimony of this man, Ananias of Damascus. A man who is devout according to the law. A man who has a good report of all the Jews who dwell there. See, Paul's different from those Jews. He's just the same. Only he's different. The first lesson that Paul teaches us here is that there is a difference. uh, Is that we are the same, rather, as absolutely everybody else. The second lesson is that there is one vital difference. We're the same, only different. Now, we began by talking about our testimony. That's what Paul's doing here. He's giving a testimony to saving grace. He's doing it in a specific situation. It's not an alternative 
It's not a substitute for the preaching of the gospel or teaching of doctrinal truth. It is a method to defend the faith when it is under attack. And as Christians, our defense against the anger of this world, our defense against the anger of this world that is aimed at Christ and his church can be the same as Paul's. We defend the faith. Now listen, we don't defend the faith by arguing with atheists. You don't defend the faith by lifting the phone to Stephen Nolan and ranting at him. It won't work. We defend the faith not by arguing with atheists and heathens and pagans and skeptics who haven't got the light within them to comprehend the scriptures. We defend the faith and we evangelize by going for the conscience of the world. How do we do that? By reminding them that we're just the same as them. That we are sinners, just as they are sinners. That when Paul, that, that when people on radio stations call us out and say, what makes you any better than the man who wants to marry his male partner? Are you saying he's not as good as you? You say to him, no, he's a sinner and I'm a sinner. We're all sinners. The only difference is that Christians are sinners saved by God's grace alone. That's the only difference. Martin Luther. Today is Reformation Day, isn't it? Martin Luther called that simul justus et peccator. The understanding that we are just like them. We're sinners too, every one of us. And we continue as sinners until the day we die or until the Lord returns to take us home. The only difference between a sinner and a saint, as the old country and western song rightly says, the only difference between a sinner and a saint is one is forgiven and the other one ain't. And we begin our defense of the faith by reminding people that we're sinners. We don't glorify our sin. We don't stand in front of people and swagger and brag about our sinful exploits. We remind sinners that we are no better than they. That we too are guilty, rebellious sinners. We're not holier than thou. We're not good living. We're sinful wretches. But we're different. And that difference is simply that somewhere along the road of life we met the risen Saviour and he changed everything for us. So that we learn to hate our sin when we do it. And we learn to be repulsed by it. And we're disgusted with it. And we repent of it. Let me finish with a personal question.
you have to give a defense of the faith someday, like Paul had. And you're standing before a group of skeptics who are not going to listen to gospel reason. Worldlings have only one agenda. The agenda is that they hate Christians and they hate Christ. And they want to do you down as much as they're not going to listen to catechetical lessons. They're not going to listen, listen to theological argument. They don't even want you to read the Bible. Would you be able to stand, like Paul did, and give a personal account of how you are a sinner, saved by grace alone? When I was a teenager, a good friend of mine who went to the same church as me joined in all the activities, had a kind of a role in the Sunday school and administration, went to all the meetings and sang in the week choir with the youth. And one day, one of the youth leaders said to her, would you participate in a meeting? What would you like me to do? Would you give a word of testimony? Tell how you met the Saviour just. Panic set in. And she said, no. Why not, said he. It's not that difficult. You'll know all the people that's sitting there were all your friends. You could plan out what you're going to say in advance and you could write it down and just get up and read it if you're nervous. She said, no. It's not that. It's just that I don't have a testimony to give. And that was the means of that girl coming to Christ. For she thought about it when she went home. I have no testimony. She gave her heart to the Lord. She trusted him in her own time. And to this day is a faithful, godly Christian woman. I just want to ask if you have to stand up someday and defend the faith, have you got a testimony to Christ's saving power? And if not, why not? The most logical thing in the world is to come to the Lord and trust Him. For your salvation. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please help to make it better known by opening the podcast app on your phone or mobile device. Then, search for The Semper Reformata Podcast. Subscribe and give it a 5-star rating. See you next time.